On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Greg Welty about the legendary Alvin Plantiga. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Alvin Plantiga? Why does he matter to both theologians and philosophers today? What is Plantica's model of faith and reason? How might this actually be similar to someone like John Owen? What did Plantica's free will defense do, and should reform Christians find it useful in any sense? What did Plantica think about the divine attributes, and why did he fundamentally reject classical theism? And should pastors care about philosophers like Plantica? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we think about serious thinking, if you're new to listening, let me give you the quick rundown of what we think about that. So we've tried to like clarify what that looks like a little bit by emphasizing certain things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us to confessionalism. Not everybody who listens to our podcast has a confession of faith that they find really valuable. We think you should because we think it's great. But uh, we, when we say cheerfully confessional, we want to just not be curmudgeons. We want to actually be happy and excited about what we have here to confess in the faith. And also, we just want to be kind and cool with other people, be interested in what they say, interested in why they say it, uh, but think critically about all those things. So we try to explain it that way. Hopefully that makes sense. Listen to some more episodes and you'll probably get a sense of what we mean by that. Now, today I am thrilled to introduce you you all to Dr. Greg Welty. I am especially excited because Dr. Welty was my THM supervisor and I learned a massive truckload of things from him in my life, and I'm still benefiting from all uh, the feedback that he's given me. So I am really indebted to him for a lot of my own theological and philosophical uh, development. So this is something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And we're going to be talking about Alvin Plantiga because he has a new book on Alvin Plantiga in the Great Thinker series. So if you're a loyal listener, we've talked with James Anderson in the past about David Hume. That book that he wrote on Hume is a part of the same series, so it's a nice, accessible-level book. It's not going to be the the 400, 500-page monograph dealing with every little nuance. This is supposed to give an introduction to their thought, so it's really nice, I think, for churches to be able to engage great thinkers. I think that's part of the point. So if you're interested, I definitely encourage you to pick up a copy. not only because Plantica is cool, but because Greg is an awesome thinker and writer. So before we get into it, Dr. Welty, tell me a little bit about yourself. Give me basic, you know, what do you do now, background, and then why did you decide to write a book on Alvin Plantica? Right. Well, uh, it's so good to connect with you again, uh, Jordan. Um, three cheers for the THM program, I guess. It sounds like you really benefited a lot uh, from it here. That's uh, that's great. I'm continuing on with uh New THM students <laughs> and PhD students. So, yeah, so um, let's see. My name's uh, Greg Welty. I, I serve as a professor of philosophy here at Southeastern uh, Seminary, uh, Baptist Theological Seminary here in Wake Forest, uh, North Carolina. I think I'm finishing up my, th- my 13th year here, right? Um, and uh, before that, I was uh, seven years at uh, Southwestern uh, Seminary in Fort Worth, uh, Texas. Um, I also serve as the program coordinator for the MA in philosophy religion here uh, at the uh, at the seminary. 
Um, prior to Texas, I was in England for five years, getting my MPhil and DPhil um, at, at Oxford uh, under uh, Richard Swinburne, and um, got my MDiv prior to that at uh, Westminster Seminary in California. Um, actually, was able to be John Frame's teaching assistant for about four years, um, and then prior to that, the bachelor's degree in philosophy at uh, UCLA. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I was not raised in a Christian home, but I became a Christian in uh, middle of high school, really under the ministry of uh, John MacArthur. Um, so I, I guess the goal is to be in every time zone. <laughs> so uh, we actually, my wife and I moved uh, nine times in our first seven years of marriage, but we, we think we've we found a home here. Hopefully I won't be moving uh, anywhere else. Uh, we love it here. Uh, I always tell the students, um, I can't. I can't believe they they pay me for me getting to do what I want, and they might ask the, the same question: Why do they pay him for uh, doing what he does? But uh, so that's just a little bit about educational. I mean, um, my lovely wife and three sons. I mean, that's uh, even more important part of the the story. But uh, again, good to be here on your on your podcast. Awesome. So give me like you don't have to go super in depth, but if someone has never heard of Alvin Plantinga, like who is he? What did he do? Where did he teach? Um, why is he even important? Like, why is he included in the Great Thinker series? Yeah, I actually consider that question in the first chapter, which is just mainly uh, biographical and gives a kind of uh, preview of his significance, which hopefully will be borne out in the, the later chapters. Um, right. I mean, in terms of like an individual, so he's like he's born in 1932. So uh uh, he turned 90 last year. I, I sent him a card <laughs> and uh, 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 he brought up in the Dutch reform tradition. So that's, if you think of Dutch reform and think of the three forms of unity in terms of uh, the um, Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, right? These are deeply important to him. Growing up, I give a kind of biographical synopsis based upon some lengthy pieces that he wrote autobiographically. And just the deep influence that his upbringing and catechizing and good preaching had on him. Uh, his education, really, uh, in terms of like college and beyond, Calvin College, he got his bachelor's there. In fact, uh, the Christian apologist Cornelius Van Til also went to Calvin College about 30 years prior to uh, Plantinga showing up there. Um, Nicholas Wolterstorff was one of Plantinga's uh, classmates there at Calvin then I think he went on to get an MA in philosophy from University of Michigan and then got his PhD at Yale uh, University. And then really a teaching career that, that spanned, uh, I think, a bit over 50 years. So um, almost five years at Wayne State University. Um, philosophy fans will know of uh, Edmund Gettier and Gettier cases. Uh, Gettier was, was actually one of Plantinga's uh, fellow uh, uh you know, philosophers at, at Wayne State. Um, then he taught for almost 20 years at Calvin College, and then I think almost 30 years at University of Notre Dame. And then there was a, a huge uh, retirement celebration. So uh, I hope he's continuing to enjoy uh, retirement. So, I mean, a, a lengthy a lengthy career, of course, that by itself doesn't make you like a great thinker, right? Um, and I, I quote him a few times. He, he sort of has an aw shucks uh, Midwestern farmer demeanor. Um, there's not really that much great about my Christian life, all the rest. Um, but I think just in terms of his, uh, the quantity of his work as a philosopher and the quality of his work and his influence upon contemporary discussion, particularly 
sort of religiously influenced philosophical discussion is is just immense in areas like Christian apologetics, philosophical theology, philosophy, religion, uh, this, this kind of thing. So um, maybe just a, a brief insight about quantity, just sheer quantity. So this is somebody who wrote the equivalent of, on average, three peer-reviewed uh, articles uh, of philosophy every year for 60 years. So, I mean, you can do the you can do the math. Um, 14 sort of monographs as well in terms of books. And then I think I note a 35-year period where I think about 22 uh, books written by other people just devoted to his philosophy and discussing it and examining it, right? So, I mean, I, I there's not a single book out there devoted to discussing my thoughts, right, um, as is to be expected. So, I, I can't imagine 22 uh, devoted to, uh, to him. So, um, maybe just finally, in terms of like a kind of uh, uniqueness about his contribution. So he rises to prominence as a philosopher in the 1960s in a very secular milieu. Um, but he continues to draw upon distinctive insights from Christian thinkers, but presenting them at like the highest level of philosophical discussion. And this simply was not done that much, right, back in the 60s and 70s, maybe in Roman Catholic journals of philosophy, but not broadly speaking. But but here's somebody who's drawing upon Augustine, Boethius, Anselm, um, Molina, um, Bavinck, Edwards, right, um, all these different uh, individuals. And that just seems really rare. Um, finally, he has a real bold methodological stance of just starting with his Christian convictions rather than hiding them away in a corner, having to prove all of his convictions by way of some lengthy prolegomena. Um, he's just sort of unabashed about just putting these on the table and saying, this is my starting point, um, and, and then sort of doing philosophy from that perspective, at least in the best way he knows how. And, and that has really been a source of great encouragement to a whole generation of Christian philosophers who have sort of built upon either his example or the content of his work. I mean, it sounds like I'm commending him as like the fourth person of the Trinity who deserves appropriate worship. Um, of course, I, I do not. He would be the first to say he's entirely fallible, right, and, and correctable. So he's not above us. He's not below us. He's at our side. We can draw upon a lot of useful work he's done as we think through these really difficult issues. So. Yeah. So I'll pause myself there. <laughs> That's all. I can't help but think of a memory. I, I don't remember who told me this. Maybe it was Doug Blunt, um, and he was given a story about Al Plantiga. He's talking about something about Aquinas said, and I think like Eleanor Stump or something's in the room and says, I don't think that's quite right about Aquinas. And Plantiga, I guess, says, well, it's still an interesting thought, so let's go with this. Just I appreciate like that sort of like personality of – you know, like okay, I'm wrong, but let's let's talk about it anyway because this is interesting. And I can't yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And philosophy, it's often not as important to get the exegesis right of historical um, authors. Right? Okay, we're not looking at Aquinas; we're looking at Schmaquinas. You know, uh, a very inf- he's widely taken, understood to take this view. Uh, let's go with that. Um, yeah. And exegesis is, you know, relatively secondary. Yeah, yeah. and I, I'm. Sh- I don't know if this is probably his most popular work or not, but he has this video on YouTube about talking about his air conditioner that I'm sure is probably the reason everybody knows who Al Plantiga is. 
<laughs> I don't I know. showed that in class several times just so they can sort of see him. But it's clear that the interviewer, the local news interviewer there in South Bend or wherever it was, has no idea who he's talking to. <laughs> All I know is that is that Planica is pointing to his uh, thermostat or something and talking about how it's not properly functioning. Or, <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, that's a nice that's a nice little clip. Uh, okay, so I think you alluded to this a little bit in what you explained here. And I'll draw it out a little bit because you have Bill Davis wrote the foreword in the book mm, and mm. he was talking, he made this point about some philosophers being called to speak to fellow Christians about the world of philosophy. And then there's others who are called to speak to fellow philosophers about Christian beliefs and how Plantinga fits in that second bucket. So maybe just explain to me a little bit about what that looked like. Cause you explained how he's growing up or I guess he's doing a lot of thought in a more secular milieu compared to what we've experienced today where he's coming forward just assuming his Christian beliefs, but that doesn't seem to be very common in his time in philosophy circles. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was, it's, it's great to have, um, Bill, Bill Davis, um, covenant college, uh, philosophy prof sort of right in the intro. Cause he was planning his teaching assistant and, and, and had a quite a bit of time with them, like in planning his old van driving to Calvin, uh, college sort of, uh, uh, discussing with him all sorts of uh, topics. But yeah, he makes this interesting point in the, uh, I don't know, preface forward, uh, whatever it's called, uh, that, uh, you know, some some uh, Christians are are called to, to speak to philosophers about Christian beliefs. At least that's a, kind of a distinctive about their, their calling. Whereas... Others are are more like philosophers speaking to fellow Christians about what philosophers do, right? And and so where I'm more familiar with that, particularly in a kind of like evangelical community, right? So a, a a Christian gets some philosophical training, and then he comes back and he's explaining to all of his fellow church members, you know, here's what philosophers think. Here's this entire world. How, you know, let's make it intelligible. Or here are some tools that can be used in Christian apologetics and. So I think maybe Davis mentions like Francis uh, Schaeffer and um, John Frame and, and, and others, right? Um, and it's not that Plantinga doesn't do that. It's just that uh, sort of there's a relative sort of difference of, of emphasis as a kind of uh, philosopher who's speaking to fellow, fellow philosophers about Christian beliefs, right? And it's a, maybe even a bit more evangelistic, I, I suppose. And so that's just because like the the venues in which he often speaks and, and publishes is sort of like major, you know, academic and largely secular publishers. And he's um, contributing to that kind of that kind of discussion. And I, I thought that that was just a very interesting distinction to make. Right. The, this doesn't come with some value judgment. And one calling is better than the other. And one calling is higher than the other. God has room for both in his kingdom. But it seems as if. Planiga has been used by God to clue in um, quite a few philosophers as to what Christians might believe or or be disposed to believe in 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 particular philosophical controversies, right? Yeah. So that's that's what that's cool. That that's helpful. I, I like the, the distinction there because I think it helps to fit him where where his importance somewhat lied. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, another question I have is on just Plantinga's model of faith and reason. I know he's got that trilogy, the Warranted Christian Belief Trilogy, and we mm. mentioned a little bit about how it he's beginning with his Christian beliefs and not really seeking to justify those. I think the first vo- thing I ever read from Plantinga was in that 
I don't know, it was like in, from the 80s. It was an edited volume by him and Walter Storff on Faith and Reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's developing this just like belief in God can be properly basic. Um, so maybe talk to me a little bit about his just understanding of faith and reason and how that functions and how, why he thinks he can just begin with belief in God and not seek to justify that in any significant way, um, how that might be different than some of the more foundationalist approaches uh, of his day. Uh, and then I have a follow-up question to that once we kind of talk about that. Okay. Well, to be clear, I mean, he is committed to offering just straightforward support for uh, various Christian beliefs, including uh, belief in God. He just might understand that that project of arguments for God somewhat differently than it has in the past, right? It's to be contrasted with the deductive natural theology of an Aquinas or an inductive or Bayesian natural theology, a probabilistic natural theology of a of a Swinburne, right? But he, he is well known for like two dozen or so arguments for the existence of God. And there's a fairly large, I think nearly 400 page book sort of expanding, right? Those, those arguments that was uh, edited by one of Plantinga's students, Jerry Walls and, and Trent, um, is it Do- Doherty? Um, so, I mean, he, he is committed to that, but of course his, his emphasis is that strictly speaking, that's not needed for belief in God or even in the great things of the gospel to be epistemically up to snuff, as it were. Uh, we don't have to hang our heads in shame if we can't ground these beliefs in inferential um, arguments. So definitely he's he's known for that. And so I think it's chapter two of the book. I get into faith and reason. Um, the other chapters are about, you know, maybe some other stuff that we may or may not get to in this particular uh, podcast. But but yeah, I mean, after the biographical stuff, I mean, right into faith and reason. Yeah, so um, I, um, I, I try to lay it out as what I call a faculty-based understanding of uh, reason and faith. And this is to be contrasted with a content-based understanding of the distinction and an inference-based understanding of the distinction. So to me, it's all about numbers. Think about numbers one through nine, okay? Single digits, so it'll be easy. So uh, the idea here is that on Plantinga's view, you can represent reason as being composed of like multiple faculties, multiple sources of belief. And so sources one through five are what he would call um, non-inferential or basic belief. You don't reason to these beliefs, but uh, you reason from them. But broadly speaking, they're given by a kind of rational equipment that God gives us. So the five sources would be something like perception, memory, introspection, a priori, rational insight, you know, like one plus one equals two, and and testimony, um, right? And, and we might not have enough time to um, sort of explain here in this in this um, podcast, but but the idea is that those five distinct sources of belief, right? Like this seems to be sort of part of human nature that we've been equipped with, but these are basic beliefs. Now, of course, we do like use our reason discursively and and compose arguments. So those are those are um, also components of reason. That's six. That's six and seven. That would be like deductive and inductive inference. So we're we're equipped with a rich uh, a variety of ways to you know, arrive at beliefs that are entirely rational, right? Um, some of these ways, uh, many of them, the first five are going to be non-inferential, basic belief, and then the, the other two are going to be inferential beliefs by which we sort of arrive at at conclusions. So that's a, you know, that can be a fairly rich uh, understanding of reason. Now, his particular contribution here is not exactly what I just said, but that 
when he now comes to faith, where does faith fit in here? Is it sort of left out in the cold? It's sitting in the corner all lonely, um, that, that kind of thing? Well, no. So, so faith is a kind of analogical extension of a couple of those reason capacities we have already looked at, namely perception and testimony. So now these are ways eight and nine. So way eight is what he, he's known as, and you mentioned the, the book that has the lengthy Reason and Belief in God essay, um, the Sensus Divinitatis. This is clearly a theme he gets from Calvin's Institutes, that we've been equipped with a kind of sixth sense, uh, which is not I see dead people, but there's a kind of belief in God that's triggered in a wide variety of circumstances. We don't reason to God. We find ourselves with this kind of quasi-perceptual belief in God, right? At least if we're functioning properly or everything's going well. So faith is a kind of knowledge. It's not the same as reason, but it is a way of knowing, just like reason is a way of knowing. And then when it comes to belief in the great things of the gospel, he comes up with this kind of analogical extension of testimony, right? There's ordinary human testimony. It's entirely rational for me to believe that a particular day is your birthday. If you just tell me that, right? If I have a reason to suspect you, I might... uh you know, need, need more proof. But in the ordinary case, I just find myself reposing confidence in what you tell me. His view is that when we read the scriptures, it might be that if the Holy Spirit is, is, is present and is working in a particular way, um, God produces faith in us when we are in the presence of divine testimony and we find ourselves reposing confidence in that. So that if you think of faith as like, you know, belief in God or trust in the scripture, that there's there's nothing there that's antithetical to reason. In fact, it's it's very similar to faculties of reason that we already accept, namely perception and and testimony. So um, this is a way of of construing reason and faith as two ways of knowing. And once you've set it up this way, there's actually a lot more further things you can say. Uh, like for instance, faith uh, faith isn't automatically subordinate to reason. Um, uh, there's certain double standards that come up that arguments, certain arguments against faith would also be arguments against reason if you were consistent. And so he, he brings out many of the implications of this view, but that's maybe just a, a bit of a snapshot of his model of faith and reason. Probably the most important thing to, to see is that he understands faith and reason as two ways of knowing, right? Rather than like faith is, you know, believing what you know ain't true, <laughs> right? Mark Twain style, or, you know, there's a lot of other alternatives here. Yeah. Um, so. Very helpful. So tell me, you mentioned how, to me before this, how this reminded you of John Owen. And there were some similarities there. Walk me through a little bit of the connection to like, how is Owen thinking about these things? Does planning a reference Owen at all? Or do you think he's coming to these conclusions independently of Owen? Um, I have a theory, not 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 directly. I, I haven't found him referencing uh, Owen. Um, come back and ask me what my theory is as to why I think there is a similarity. But while I was waiting for the, I mean the the book to come out and get copies of it, um, Crossway sent me Volume Seven of the works of John Owen, and um, I'm, I am a, a big John Owen fan as well. So John Owen, 17th century, right, Puritan. Um, Chaplain Oliver Cromwell, uh, Chancellor, Oxford University, uh, lengthy commentary in Hebrews. I'm sure your hearers are aware of uh, 
of Don Owen. So I'm paging through this volume, reading it, very happy that this lavishly produced volume that I'm now going to buy all the other ones, I will, um, has this treatise that Owen wrote in 1677 called The Reason of Faith. And the entire treatise is about why, what is the formal reason? Why do we believe that the scriptures are the word of God? And Owen is, is sort of like trying to avoid two different pitfalls. On the one hand, the, the Roman Catholic understanding of this, which seems to be that we are dependent upon church authority or the curia or, you know, some, some kind of authoritative statement from the church to, to, to repose confidence in the scriptures. Or we're dependent upon all this external argumentation, right, to sort of persuade us, maybe probabilistically, that the Bible is the word of God. And he sort of says, a pox on both your houses. Um, in this, in this treatise, he, he defines faith as just trust in divine testimony. And I found that really intriguing because that seems to be exactly what Planiga, um, is, is arguing. And on Owen's view, he's very clear. And this does not require, strictly speaking, any supporting argumentation. As I began to read the treatise, this is the reason of faith written by Owen in 1677. As I began to read it, I noticed that he also has a, a faculty-based understanding of reason and faith. Um, so just real quickly, there's, there's three sort of faculties that compose reason for Owen. As I understand it, you can check it out. It's chapter six of the reason of faith. He talks about the light of reason. So the light of reason is like this capacity we have to just see that certain things are true. So there's no inference involved. You just, you just see it. And he actually thinks we can get knowledge of God by way of just like the light of reason. Sounds very similar, like the census of Anatotus. Um, and then he has, secondly, um, reason in its exercise. This is the discursive faculty of reason. So think of like deductive argumentation, inductive argumentation, right? So this is the second aspect of reason. Then the third thing is testimony, Right? We, we, we just are in the presence of testimony and we, we believe it. And by testimony, we can believe rationally in things that we don't know by way of the light of reason, faculty one, and we don't know by way of the exercise of reason, faculty two. Right? And, and then when it comes to defining faith, he, he just says, well, f faith is, is trust in, in divine testimony. Right? And we actually see the, the divinity of the scriptures as, as we are exposed to them. And so once, once again, the idea is that reason is understood by way of multiple faculties. And then what's going on in faith is almost like this analogical extension of what's going on in, um, in reason, particularly with, uh, testimony. But he has this place for, um, full faith in the scriptures that doesn't have to be supported by external argument. Now, he has a whole chapter, chapter three, how we can support it by external argument. But like Planiga, his point is that we don't need to. So, I mean, I was just struck by that, you know? I mean, just uh, having completed this little, you know, intro to Planiga, that, uh, wow, that like maybe Planiga and Owen are tapping into like a deeply reformed project, well, a deeply reformed way of doing the knowledge project, right? So, um so that's the answer to the first part of your question. I guess the second part is, is there any connection between Planiga and Owen? I mean, I don't want to prejudge what you want to ask next, but I assume that that was. Yeah, yeah. I, I answered that. I want to know, like, in your mind, you, you don't have to tell me this is the case, actually. But it's just your own theory of, like, is there a connection? Like, is there is there blood in the water somewhere that somehow gets yeah. to him that's not directly Owen, but Owen is talking to this person who's influencing this person or, or like, what's your 
What's your theory on that? Yeah. Um, so when I when I when I think about think about this, I I, I thought through some of the sources that Planaga is drawing upon in Warranted Christian Belief, the third volume of the of his uh, trilogy on on Warrant, and so you get um, uh, quite a bit from Jonathan Edwards as well as from. Uh, Bavink and and Calvin um, and he he does um, bring uh, um, Aquinas on board. This is why it's called the Aquinas Calvin model um, of of how we acquire both belief in God and in faith and the and the great things of the the gospel. But uh, I I began to to think about well what about Edwards right I mean um, he so Planning cites Edwards the religious affections right and and Edwards is going on in this quote. Uh, about how we just see the divinity of the scriptures, and he says it is immediate, right? It's not by way of inference. This is this is Edwards, but we know actually that Edwards was himself familiar with with Owen, and he actually draws upon the works of Owen. Um, so I think there's a piece by Doug Sweeney that you mentioned. You mentioned James Anderson. This is a common friend of ours. He sort of drew this to my attention that there's a a piece by Doug Sweeney where, where Edwards explicitly relies upon Owen for his understanding of Melchizedek and Hebrews 7. I remember um, not this last sabbatical, but the prior sabbatical, I actually worked my way, I read the two Banner Truth volumes on, on Edwards, right? So not the scholarly source, I apologize, but, you know, just to sort of get through it. But it was fascinating reading Edwards' letters. People were constantly sending him books from across the, the Atlantic Ocean, right? Books going back and forth. Thank you so much for this latest package of books. Owen was always keeping up with what's going on in, um, you know, British theology, European theology, philosophy as well. Um, and it, it seems pretty clear he, he is he is familiar with the work of, of John Owen, right? Um, this 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 guy from the, the previous uh, the previous century. And and there's clearly there's something in the air, in the in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, that this kind of Protestant or Reformed you know polemic about um, faith in Scripture as the Word of God, right? They they're not telling the Roman Catholic story about this. They're providing some kind of alternative, and um, Edward's alternative looks very much like Owen. And, and, and Planiga is drawing upon Edwards as well. So I don't think there's any direct textual dependence here. It's more like an approach to these issues that's very much in the air among the reformed of the, the 17th and 18th century. So that's the, that's my, that's my best sanctified speculation. Well, I, I, I happen to think that speculation is pretty accurate. So I was also thinking of Edwards as you explained this. So I take your testimony as truth here. Um, uh, Another question I want to talk about is his free will defense. Uh, I think this is pretty influential. So just give me like the the high level overview. What is the free will defense? And then the second question I would say is, if you're a traditional reform thinker, should you find this useful or plausible in any sense? Because I think, at least in America, a lot of, let's just use the word Calvinist as like, somebody who's really like strong reform soteriology, but doesn't have the rest of the reform stuff. They might hear the word free will and get weirded out and be like, I don't have any use for this at all. I don't want to have a free will defense. I don't think free will exists or whatever they say. Um, so what is it? And then is it useful in any sense? Right. So I'm going to try to, um, talk about this without actually having to, um, 
page through uh, a bunch of um, a bunch of other stuff and try to sort of. So I'm just going to try to go off of uh, you know memory here. But one of the interesting things about, of course, having to do a little book like this, and and by the way, I mean the plan the planning a book. I mean, I hope. You know, maybe some of your readers will find it helpful. I, I'm not billing it as like the next turning point in Western civilization, right? That's not what the book. <laughs> that's not what the book uh, is, but it's just uh, hopefully uh, an, an accurate and accessible sort of summary and of a lot of his positions in a lot of different um, a lot of different areas. Um, but what I discovered in writing the book is that Plantinga actually has about uh, uh, seven different replies to the problem of evil. Right, problem of evil is an argument against God's existence from the presence of significant pain and suffering in the world, and he actually has seven different replies. Um, it does seem that two of his replies depend upon libertarian free will in in some in some sense. Um, so um, it, it's just whether it depends upon its possibility, its actuality, its value. I mean, we can talk more uh, about that. So. Um, Long story short, there's a 1955 article by the famous Oxford atheist J.L. Mackey called Evil and Omnipotence, and Mackey says that theistic beliefs are contradictory. Um, The existence of God and the existence of evil are contradictory. Uh, You can't have a world in which there's a God with the omni-attributes and evil, because if God's all-knowing, he'd know about all the evil. If he's all-powerful, he would be able to get rid of it. And if he's all-good, he would get rid of it. So if he does, in fact, exist, namely God, there's just not going to be any evil, not even a speck of evil. It would be like having a universe that has an immovable object and irresistible force. There just couldn't be one. One of these will exclude the other. Well, this is a pretty bold claim, (laughs) right? Um, And so he has a, a few replies to it. But the reply that Plantinga is most known for is to say, wow, you've made a really highfalutin claim here. You've said that God and evil are logically contradictory. Um, as Doug Guyvett puts it, the, 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 the strength of the claim might be its Achilles heel, because all you have to do is find one possible world in which you can clearly sort of show this is a possible world in which God and evil exist. And the, the so-called logical problem of evil is just done with. So... He, this is, the free will defense is a is an attempt to argue that God and evil are in fact logically consistent. This is not meant to pastorally counsel you in the presence of evil. Um, it's not meant to deal with the potentially more potent evidential problem of evil. Um, m- many of Plantinga's arguments are not well, just about all of them. They're not meant to do everything, but they do something right, each in its own place. So. His uh, his uh, way to refute Mackey is to come up with a model, a possible world in which it's clear that God exists, and um, and and if God were to exist and do something in that world, evil would also exist. Um, clearly, then God and evil are coexisting. So it's all about uh, options available to God by way of these uh, pesky truths known as the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. <laughs> Um, so the idea is that as part of God's omniscience to know how we would use our free will if he were to create us and place us in circumstances. So he is assuming, for the sake of argument, there, that there could be such truths that reveal to God how we would use our libertarian free will. Then the idea here is because these truths don't depend upon God, it could be that these truths reveal to God that all possible persons available to God to create are what he, what Plantinga calls transworldly depraved. <laughs> I think this is as sort of a jokey reference to, um, you know, total depravity on the part of, of Calvinists. But the idea here is that for any person available to God to create, if he were to create them, they would end up doing at least one bad thing. 
right? They, they would steal a piece of gum from the store or have a bad thought about their mothers, right? They don't have to be serial killers. The idea is that the counterfactuals reveal this. Notice what would be the case if the counterfactuals reveal this. Again, that for any possible person available to God to create, that person would do at least one bad thing with their freedom. If God wants a world with moral good in it, if God wants a world with free will in it, the price he pays is that there's going to be moral evil, at least some. So imagine that um, God goes ahead and creates a world that ends up having moral good in it, right? Um, there's also going to be moral evil in it. That's entailed if, in fact, the counterfactuals are like this. Um, God's not going to hold moral good hostage to the possibility of moral evil, right? So this is supposed to be a model in which it's clear that God exists with his omni-attributes. God goes ahead and creates a world with creatures who have freedom. And, of course, that entails, in this situation, that there's going to be evil. So, so clearly, then, we have a world in which both God and evil um, coexist. So I, I don't know if that was clear as mud to, to your listeners. Clearly, it's an involved argument. Um, but even Mackey himself eventually seems to concede, I think this is in his book, The Miracle of Theism, that this, um, this, this reply does seem to work. Um, but of course, there's, there's, there's other versions of the problem of evil as well. So, um, so there you go. Um, yeah. um, probably a follow-up as to whether um, Reformed Christians should, should care about this or use it. or <laughs> Yeah, should, I mean, just give me the, your, your, your opinion. It doesn't have to be long. Should they care about it? Should they use it? <laughs> right, right. Um, well, of course, there's all sorts of uh, sort of uh, maybe warnings that, that many um, Reformed Christians might have in sort of thinking through this. What's interesting is that uh, Planiga, I think this is a reply to a Christian philosopher named Jerry Walls, who's now at Houston Baptist University. Um, Plan Planiga sort of clarifies the free will defense by saying, well, of course, I believe that we do have libertarian free will, but my free will defense doesn't require that we actually have um, uh, libertarian free will. It's a defense, not a theodicy. It's just a possible way things could be. That's all I need to refute Mackey. Mackey made such an extreme claim, right? There just couldn't be a world in which God and evil coexist. All I have to do is come up with one possible world. It doesn't have to be the actual world. And planning, it doesn't think there we actually have transworld depravity. Um, but um, as long as it's possible. So that, you know, it could be that there were Reformed Christians who might say, you know, I don't think, as a matter of fact, we have um, libertarian free will, um, but maybe we can be, I don't know, Calvinist in our convictions, but Molinist in our imaginings or something. <laughs> and so um, maybe it's possible that there's libertarian free will. They might say, you know, even if we humans don't have libertarian free will, maybe God has that. Um, why? What did he, did he really have to create? I mean, this is at least an interesting issue, right? Uh, whether God had the ability to refrain from creating. If you grant him that, it surely looks like some kind of libertarian free will is, is possible for some personal beings, namely God. Um, uh, maybe the libertarian free will doesn't even have the value that Planiga is placing upon it, in which case it might be really puzzling that God would go ahead and create a world, right? Um, with, with it. And maybe we, we shouldn't consider it to be a possibility. So I don't think there's like, like one correct answer here as to how Reformed Christians should respond to this. Uh, if, if you were to use the free will defense, it would be a kind of possibility that you use for the sake of argument to refute this particular version of the problem of evil. Yeah. 
that being said, my final my final answer is if, if you think um, in, any answer to the problem of evil regarding libertarian free will being even possible or valuable just as a non-starter for Reformed Christians like that, I'm sorry, that's just where I come down. What I say in the book is that at best, I think you just lose two of Plantinga's seven replies to the problem of evil. Despite maybe a kind of reputation that he's gotten, libertarian free will just isn't as central to uh, a lot of his philosophical work, including the work on the problem of evil, as many people seem to assume. That doesn't mean he's not a libertarian. Clearly he is. He's very committed to this. But that's different from saying, and you need to invoke it in every response. He certainly doesn't think that. He has a very famous response that uses it, but it's not his only response. Cool. That That's really helpful. And it sort of guides me into the next question that I had on his thinking about divine attributes. Mm. Um, so there's a question of like, what does he think about these things? Why does he reject what's so-called classical theism, some mm. of the classical attributes? Um, and then again, is this important for his overall philosoph- philosophical project or can you somehow pull them apart? So I think of one of the famous books, that small little one, mm. what, does God have a nature? And where he goes off talking about, you know, divine simplicity is this dark saying, like, who in the world knows what this means? And it seems like there's been a lot of criticism of that after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what? Aquinas clearly doesn't think that God is a property, and that's what Plantinga is thinking here. So just, what does he think about the divine attributes? Why does he reject classical theism? Is he, re- is he truly rejecting what most people think of as classical theism, what Aquinas thinks? Mm. And... Is that necessary for his overall philosophical project? Right. I do have a a separate chapter on his view of the divine attributes, and he has devoted quite a bit of time to defending what's known as the coherence of theism, right? That that God is not like a married bachelor, right, or square circle. His attributes do do make sense, right, when when put together. Uh, At the very least, it's possible I think that God exists. I mean, he goes much further than this in his other work. He thinks we can have, you know, good arguments and some sense of good, right, for uh, for God. Um, but that doesn't mean that he accepts everything that um, has been um, affirmed of God within, uh, you know, the classical theistic tradition. So so one of the things I do is uh, after outlining, right, like a, a pretty enormous sort of body of work defending the coherence of theism as he understands it, I document in the last chapter, which is really about how Plantinga relates to the Reformed heritage, right? Are there aspects of classical theism that he rejects? And it does seem like he does. I, I, I give chapter and verse on this, as it were, right? So you mentioned the 1980 book, Does God Have a Nature? Pretty clearly he's rejecting um, divine simplicity, at least as Aquinas uh, understood it. Um, there's other passages he pretty clearly rejects divine timelessness, um, there's still other passages which seem to clearly imply he rejects like the absolute immutability of God, right? So he he seems to indicate that God suffered as God um, uh, with respect to the uh, um, you know the atonement as the the Father sees His Son on the cross. It's not just like the Son in His human nature. God as God um, suffers, and and he also seems to reject the view that God is without passions, right? Um, and, and, and this is, uh, he has a, a, a bit, I think, in War to Christian Belief, where he talks about the passions of God in terms of love towards us and things like that. He thinks this is the end of that tradition, God being without passion. So I, I chose these phrases carefully because, of course, there is that passage in both the Westminster and the London Baptist Confessions 
uh, on the doctrine of God that God is without body, parts, and passions, right? So, I mean, he doesn't think God is a body, but he, you know, some of these other things. So here's what I, here's what I say. I, I, I make a clear case that he does, in fact, depart from the classical theist tradition here. But I also note that it's not clear, like, how significant that is for his body of work. It seems like just about all of his arguments, um, major arguments, sort of go, go through. Um, he doesn't need this. In fact, at some points, he says, yeah, but if you believe in timelessness, you can just add it, you know. Um, my argument here doesn't depend on which way you, which way you go. So he, he's on record as making these denials, but he doesn't do a lot with it, you know. He doesn't like say, and because God is in time rather than being outside of time, all this other stuff must be reformulated. He doesn't actually affect a kind of like reformulation of everything else that you want to believe in a lot of the fact that he's rejected certain aspects of classical theism. He sort of domesticates his, uh, his rejection and, um, that kind of thing. So I, I thought that that was interesting that, that he thinks, um, on the one hand, it was important enough to go on record about this with respect to uh, particularly timelessness and mutability, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't take these denials to be the star of like a completely new view of God. If you want to, the way I put it, if you want to add the classical theism back in, you probably could, and you wouldn't lose a a lot that's in Planiga. Very, very helpful. Uh, Last question I want to ask you is we have a lot of pastors who listen. So should they care about Alvin Plantiga? Why should they care about him? And if they if they should, is there anything particular that they should read from him? Right, right. I mean, I I did write the book for like different you know groups of people, right? I'm I'm sure there's going to be many pastors just given Plantinga's prominence, right? They've they've at least heard of him. They've heard that many people take him to be important, right? I think he did something on Problem of Evil that a lot of people discuss. He talks a lot about like the census divinitatis, right? Um, but I, I can't, for the life of me, I don't understand what he's saying, right? I don't know why it's important. The, the book is meant to sort of talk about the what and the why so that they would at least, you know, understand this, this person that gets talked about even, you know, in, in, um, Christian circles, whether they're philosophical or not. Um, secondly, you know, pastors who are, you know, themselves reformed or Calvinistic, they've heard, oh, Plantinga is supposed to be this Calvinistic philosopher. Well, what about him as Calvinistic? I mean, anything? Um, I try to sort of highlight several reformed doctrines and sort of connect them to, to Plantinga, right? There's many aspects of his work are deeply reformed. I, I, I think many, many of those themes are on display in warranted Christian belief, particularly when you look at his sources and his, his arguments and, and, and theory of how faith is produced by the Holy Spirit as we uh, read the scriptures. He's citing many Reformed sources. So this book will help you understand, right, like to what degree is he Calvinistic, right? And, and also like, you know, to what extent does that matter for his um, work? Um, thirdly, of course, as a pastor, and, and just I think all of us as Christians, we're very much interested in, in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Um, and, and so maybe they want to know, okay, Plantinga made a lot of contributions. Do these contributions help or do they hinder the cause of the gospel in the world, right? I want to reach the world with the gospel. You know, there is some commentary on that, right? I, I think he's, he's quite helpful in the task of Christian apologetics. Um, a number of other people in the province of God have also entered into this task. So Plantinga is not to just, you know, define the field or something. That would be absurd. But, uh, yeah, he's... 
he, he is an ally, right? I think fundamentally that, that's one thing I wanted to convey. He is an ally. Is he fallible? Yes, he'd be the first person to say that. Um, but uh, couldn't we draw upon him profitably um, to um, maybe um, wipe away a lot of the rationalistic excuses for not taking the claims of Christ seriously? Um, yes. Yeah, he could be a source for that. So. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Welty. This has been really awesome. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Plantiga. And may I remind our listeners that Dr. Welty also has other books that you can purchase. Uh, <laughs> I just recommended his book today, literally, um, about, about evil. So, like, I don't remember. What's the title of that? Why, like, something about why there's evil in the world. Why is there evil in the world and so much of it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, so I, I recommended that one just today, actually. So okay. I'll put that one in the show notes as well so that you can use them, disseminate them to your churches and other contexts, because uh, I think they're very valuable. Greg is a unique person. Uh, we have not many truly reformed philosophers in, in the world today. It seems most philosophers just either aren't Christians or they don't care about reformed theology. Uh, Greg is one of those. So I, I'm very excited to have him here talk to us. Um, and I want to recommend all of his stuff. So thanks, everybody, who's tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you soon.